Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Louisa Nolan, Chief Data Scientist at the Office of National Statistics, about how the UK Government Statistics Office has increasingly been integrating alternative data into its normal processes. In our conversation, Louisa and I speak about how the ONS is able to bring to bear proprietary national data sets such as traffic light data on problems such as how to measure GDP growth. We also discuss the ONS's very specific relationship with the alternative data ecosystem and its different motivations as it serves the national public rather than investors or shareholders. Thanks, I will do. So the Office for National Statistics, ONS, um, is the UK's National Statistics Institute, which um, means that we're recognised publishing statistics related to the UK's economy, population and society, national, regional and local levels. Um, We also do the census in England and Wales as well. So we are a repository of official and independent data information analysis for decision makers in the UK. I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you know when it was established? Oh, so there were different bits of it. So there was, I think, um, Winston Churchill established the. I think it was the Business Statistics Office. Winston Churchill, because he was. Uh, I, I don't want to. It's a. It's a. It's a hole, But Churchill was interesting because actually he he um in the kind of 1910s then he put in the first, you know, the first social security type type thinking. I think in the in the UK. So maybe it was around that. It was kind of. The welfare state. He he laid the first. I th- I want to say he laid the first plans for that back in the back in the beginning of the last century. Oh, so I'm I'm going to things that I don't know much about. <laughs> well, let's get back on the data. That's <laughs> office. I think it was the Second World War, so that we could understand okay. what stuff we had in the country. That makes sense as well. Absolutely, yeah. So World War Two, obviously, that's that's Churchill Churchill uh, peak. So um, so fantastic. Okay, so the so the ONS is there to serve um, the British public and the and the government on all things statistics, and uh, you do that by doing a um, by doing things like the census and actually doing the. Would you say you're the data science office for the government? Well, certainly the National Statistics. Institute. So we collect data through surveys, some admin data, census, and so on, uh, to inform things. The data science campus is a bit unique. Other government departments also have uh, data scientists, and data scientists, even in ONS, exist outside of the data science campus. But we are a centre of excellence for data science. And we were set up, so I do know the dates for this, we were set up in, uh, sorry, 2017, um, so four and a bit years ago. And it was an outcome of the independent review of UK economic statistics that was uh, done, led by Professor Sir Charles Bean in 2016. And one of the things that came out of that was the desire to make sure that government and ONS kept ahead of innovation. You know, we live in a digital world. There's all this data being generated, new tools, new techniques. We need to make sure that we're not doing the same things that necessarily we're doing in 1911, things have moved on since then, Um, but we're we're taking advantage of these new types of data and new tools. And so the campus was set up to help support building capability in data science in ONS and across government, but also to do innovation, to try out new data sets, to 
try different things, try out new tools and techniques and see what we can implement into our um, to enhance and support our statistics and analysis that we produce. Uh, so uh, statistics analysis, uh, just to just to step back a little bit to the ONS, um, that so um, we talked about the census, but also can you just give a little bit, put your arms a little bit around what the breadth of statistics that the ONS provides for the government are and what the usage of them is? So, um, so for example, I mean, GDP figures, they come from the ONS, don't they? That's right. So we're responsible for producing um, gross domestic product. This is the headline figure for economic statistics. Um, it's made up of hundreds, thousands of um, time series of different aspects of the economy. And also we have the national accounts as well. So a lot of economic data used a lot to inform things like the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, the Treasury, um, and various other government departments. Those are the headlines. Obviously, we also do it for the other UK nations um, as well. Uh, we, we have the census, which is which is the census. What can I say about the census? The, the, the count of everybody in the UK, which is fascinating and obviously happened earlier this year. Yep, I filled um, mine in. Excellent, pleased to hear it. Um, unusual year for the census. Be in, really interesting. Indeed. Well, it always is really interesting to see the results. And then a lot of other um, social and environmental data. So we have things like the labour market survey. We produce statistics on travel and tourism, well-being, the environment, natural capital. I'm not going to name all of them. I don't think. No, no, no. Absolutely, it's everything. It's all statistic. But and is there any is there anyone that you overlap with? I mean, the Bank of England. So some. So in Europe, then you've got um, you've got a statistics office, and then the European Central Bank does its own statistics as well. Is the Bank of England like that? Do you do you kind of compete with them and, and have different statistics, or do they rely on you? We collaborate with them. We don't compete with them. So we work we work closely with with other government departments. We're unusual in the UK in that um, ONS, the National Statistics Institute produces the financial accounts, not the central bank. But obviously we work closely with the Bank of England on that and with various other people on some of our outputs. So we cover different things and we're not we're certainly not the only producer of national statistics. We're just the biggest. And you're for everyone to use in terms of you're for the government, obviously, um, because they need hard figures to be able to rely on. But you're also for academics researching, you're for newspapers to quote what's what's going on. You're essentially a kind of public good and uh, not just for Brits, for everyone. Like where, where do you where do you see your 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 customer as being? Absolutely. So we have a number of different types of customers. As you say, obviously, government's important. Data is important. We want evidence based policy and we provide independent statistics on that. But the same also for you know the woman in the street to make decisions, to understand what's going on in the country, for the media to mediate that as well, for businesses to understand what's going on, thinking about their own, growing their own businesses, um, anyone who's a decision maker. And of course, it isn't, as you say, it's not just the UK. Um, obviously, internationally, people are interested, people like the OECD or the UN are interested in how different countries' uh, economies are going. Um, I should also probably mention the sustainable measurement of the sustainable development goals as well, which is very much an international initiative. So we public we publish on our website with lots of information, not just the data, but also how that data was collected, what the quality of that data is, and that's a really important part of what we do. Okay. 
Brilliant. So that's the ONS. You're the data science campus within that. Yeah. Um, and so can you give a couple of examples of how data science has been used in the last in the last four years since you were created to complement the overall ONS um, uh, mission? Yes. So there's lots, lots of different examples. But my first example, I think, is in the general sphere of faster indicators. So this was something else that came out of the review of economic statistics. Um, Professor Sir Charles Bean said, the longer a decision maker has to wait for the statistics, the less useful they are likely to be. So one of the things that we wanted to look at was whether we could find interesting data sets which could tell us something about the economy faster than our more accurate but slower um, outputs. So this was something that really came out of the... Um, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. So, so this, this was interesting. So we wanted to, we thought about this and we thought we want to find things which have high frequency and low latency because it's important that, that, you know, we get things quicker. This is the point of what we're doing. We also wanted to find things that were, were related conceptually to the things that we're interested in. So you can't necessarily find in big data a measure that's conceptually accurate for GDP that just doesn't exist but there are there are other things that you could do what we didn't want to do was something like um I don't know whether you've heard of the lipstick index so this was the idea that in in times of downturns people bought more lipstick or small luxury items but it's not actually a very good measure of the economy and it was in fact invented by the chair of Estee Lauder possibly to sell more lipsticks mm. So we wanted something a bit more real than that. Oh, my other good example of what we didn't want to do is there's a, the example of men's pants. Apparently, I haven't checked this personally. Apparently, men buy the same quantity, volume of pants consistently, except when things get really bad and then they buy fewer pants. So I think the message there is that if men's pants go down, we need to worry. Well, there's the there's the short skirts as well. In uh, there's a famous one in the in the 20s. The shorter the skirts got, the closer the boom was until the depression came, and then the skirts went dropped back down to the ankles again. That's it. But none of them are really terribly accurate, and they're so subjective. So we wanted to do something a bit more real than that. So the data sets that we started off with for our faster indicators, um, and we've hugely expanded this program where the first thing we looked at was the diffusion index for VAT. So this just says what proportion of businesses have higher turnover this month or week than last time. Um, we also have a really fascinating data set um, on ship tracking. So every ship over a certain size has to ping its position every second or so when it's in motion and then every couple of minutes when it's at rest. So you can imagine all the ships on all of the ocean telling you where they are. So we put together some indicators looking at ships coming into UK ports. And then the other one that we started off with was road traffic. So everybody's probably seen the, um, the uh, oh, I forget what it's called now, uh, active travel management on motorways where the, the speeds change. So you have all these sensors all over the roads, the major roads of the UK. And we think, so for ships coming into and out of port, if we've got goods coming into the UK, a lot of them are on ships. So if we've got a lot of shipping, that's probably a good thing for the economy. And the same with the road traffic data, we can separate out trucks from cars. If you've got lots of trucks moving around, that's probably a good indicator of the economy. So these were quite different 
data sets from doing a survey asking businesses about stuff quite an immediate thing to do so this is interesting let's let's just dwell on that quickly so this is so the this is for for example mapping gdp and mm-hmm. how does how what's the traditional way to map gdp as you say it's surveys which is which has always struck me as rather a soft and unwieldy process and 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 inaccurate and 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 with gdp the it actually needs to it takes two or three revisions to actually get it right doesn't it because you need to keep doing it so it'll be kind of nine months down the line before you actually got a really good feeling about what happened in that quarter so this is a really interesting question and this totally gets my nerd um methodology going here so surveys are a really good way to collect robust data you can ask the question about the concept you actually want rather than trying to guess how close it is um, to the thing you want to measure Um, you can ask the question at the time that you want the time period that you want you're in control of the data collection so any changes you make it's not a third party making Um, and a well sampled survey you know what the biases are, you know what the uncertainties are, and so you can measure it quite accurately. Some of the reasons for revisions is that it sometimes takes more time for people to respond to the survey, so we have more information. And this comes back to a really basic thing, which is that there is always a trade-off between quality dimensions, so the quality of accuracy and the quality of timeliness. So a lot of our faster indicators have said, well, accuracy is still important, we'll do our surveys, we'll do the robust thing as well, But actually, if we want to have an early insight into the kind of big movements about what's going on, then we can look at these faster indicators. So I don't think we're ready to throw, I don't think we're ever going to throw surveys out of the window because they're still really important. They're the benchmark. They are, if you like, the ground truth. Um, And there's a really interesting question about how then you, you fuse your survey data with some of these big data alternative data sources. That, that was my next question. So I'm glad you think it's a good one. Um, in terms of do you have you found a way? Have you started um, like pumping this this fast moving flow into you've got big survey data, which is essentially asking people how they view, um, you know, such and such a, a, a quarter broadly and correct me if I'm wrong because I never dug into exactly what the surveys look like but then now you're getting you're talking about getting all these fast moving very kind of quantitative data have you started solving the challenge of marrying the two we're looking at this so first of all to say about the surveys um GDP there's three different measures of GDP there are quite a lot of different surveys that go to different aspects it might be turnover it might be about pay, it might be, although we get some administrative data for that now, it might be about international trade, um, it might be about retail sales. So they are quantitative values. But if I tell you that there's at least 16 different definitions of turnover, and then one which fits within our framework for GDP, it's not. It's never quite as simple as, as people think. So in terms of fusing it, this is really interesting. So this is really where we are at the moment. You know, stage one, let's have a look at what we've got. How is it useful? What can we do with it? Can we understand it? Because we've got in ONS centuries, millennia maybe of experience of doing um, surveys between us, between all the people who work at ONS. We understand the data. We understand how surveys work. Um, we're, we're, I'd like to say we're very knowledgeable about that. But these new data sources, they're new. We haven't, we haven't spent as much time or, um, or dedication on understanding them. So we're still at, at the fairly early stage of our journey of understanding what are the biases? How do we fuse them? What is the best way of um, taking these sources, 
and turning them to something in, in, turning them to something more robust. So in, having our timeliness good, but also increasing some of the accuracy as well. I don't think I'm not sure that I have an answer for that at the moment. There's various different um, methods for doing this. I mean, one is you can look at uh, various different components of these faster indicators and then use a machine learning model to mm. predict or model some other concept like GDP. So that's something that we're looking at at the moment. Um, but it's a really exciting area. And I think we've got, I think there's a lot more to be done, which is good. The challenge, as as often is the case with alternative data, might be in finding enough historic data to be able to backtest in order to be able to to explore, you know, when traffic light traffic light data was doing such and such in 2014 that's what gdp looked like that quarter um and so we can build that machine learned model um to be able yeah. to to then play it forward in order to be able to get kind of accurate reads from your from your shipping or whatever whatever data um do you know uh, have you have you encountered that problem does it go does it go, go far back your your data so this is a really this is a really good point and this is always the frustration um, it might be that the data hasn't been collected for very many years, or it might be that they are, but they, they don't store it for that long. Or it might be in some cases, the data was collected in one way. So taking road traffic sensors, you had one set of road sensors up until I think it was 2015 or something, and then they changed after that. Mm. And you're not in control of that change. So there's all kinds of um, interesting challenges with that. And I think I think you're right that oh, have we got a long history? How far does it go back is one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges that we have. But, wow. you know, it shouldn't be a barrier to trying things. And if we don't start now, we'll never build up that longer history that we can use. I had a the person who set up the data science team for the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund on this podcast um, fairly recently. And he said, similar to you, he said that a thing they found out was that Singapore's got an awful lot of, of proprietary data, which is mm-hmm. which is valuable. For example, you know, whatever percentage of it is of, of world trade goes through Singapore's port and the Singapore government knows what's in what's in all those ships, what's in all those containers. So actually there was this incredible value which could be found from from for singapore specifically um which was a yeah which which and it's slightly different because the use case is slightly different because the singapore sovereign wealth fund is trying to be competitive in the market with its data Mm. so it's trying to use data in ways that um other people don't have in order to get that edge um but i was just wondering if there's anything that you think that's an obvious kind of way that singapore's ahead I wonder if you think there's a way that uh, uh, an, an aspect that the way the UK is positioned or, or is set up that would mean that you'd have better insight perhaps than your equivalents in the US or other European countries or, or anywhere else in the world. Is there anything that you see might be the kind of UK strength when it comes to this kind of data set? I'd, I'd be nervous about saying, oh, we're better than everyone at this. But I think we were probably one of the first countries to publish, regularly publish this kind of faster indicator, first National Statistics Institute to publish some of this faster indicator data. And certainly over the last year or so with the pandemic, lots of other countries are doing the same. But ONS, we've hugely expanded the faster information that we have because things have been changing so rapidly that, you know, a survey that comes every three months isn't enough to keep a keep tabs on what's happening in the shorter term. And three months is a long time in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think the campus is something that we have, which um, some other NSIs have similar things, but we're probably 
um, certainly up there with the campus and having that space for innovation. I think we've taken on, um, we've explored quite a lot of really interesting data, which again, I don't want to say, you know, who's, who's best in the world, but certainly puts us up there. Like some of the mobility data we've been exploring, like the ships, um, we're working with the UN and providing some training around using the shipping data as well. So that's definitely somewhere where we're leading. But it's interesting, different countries have different data sets, different people who own those data sets, whether it's government or the private sector, different ability to access those data sets. Um, so it's a very, it's, it's quite a difficult um, picture to, to cover. But I think, you know, we've built some really good relationships. We're interested in hearing from people in the private sector who have interesting data sets. And the one thing that's really important for me to say is that as ONS, we are absolutely not ever interested in tracking individuals or individual businesses. This is all about the stats and the research. Um, we have a strong focus on ethics and privacy. Legally, we can't use your data to identify people. Ethically, we don't want to. Um, but there are lots of interesting data where we can do aggregate statistics, look at the insights um, and better understand what's going on in the country. That's a very important, very important point. And it and it's and it strikes me and it's interesting because I spend most of my time, as I say, talking to people who are uh, and might I say also most people who I speak to and hedge funds, et cetera, aren't interested in the privacy data at all either, because mm. really what they want is the is the aggregated data. They want to extract, you know, the trends. They, they're not interested in what, you know, Mike Jones had for, had for breakfast. They're interested in what all the Mike Joneses are going to have for breakfast because then they can buy that stock type thing. Um, but uh, but it's interesting because it's a different it's a different use case than most because as i say most a lot of people in the markets are using this to try and get an edge whereas your use case is much more um kind of democratic constructive positive it's for everyone it's sharing it's it's open you what you like there'd be no reason uh that i can immediately think of why you why when you have a finding why you wouldn't want everyone to know it you know it's a, it's an extremely it's a different um it's a different model i just wonder where you fit into the into the into the ecosystem in terms of have you bought any alternative data sets from data vendors um are you willing to pay their prices are you is there an advertising <laughs> is there an ab advertising benefit that you're using that kind of thing uh, have you have you got a relationship have you discovered that at all so we have we we there's a number of different ways that we work our, our preferred model is always to work closely with a data provider and to try and and to try and exchange mutual value we can bring a dimension, a kind of capability, knowledge dimension, which sometimes um, private sector hasn't hasn't looked at because of our particular role in producing aggregate statistics. Um, we obviously, if there's a burden on a business in producing and delivering data to us, um, we wouldn't want anyone to be out of pocket. So it's, it's not impossible, and we have gone out to the procurement for some data sets. Um, but really, where we can find some kind of value exchange, that's a much more mutually um, beneficial way to work. Because just having the data isn't enough. The, the numbers are really only the tip of the iceberg. What you need to do is to understand how that state of data is generated, what its strengths are, what its weaknesses are. You know, there's been a lot of talk about bias in um, AI algorithms. And to tackle that, you need to understand that data. So just, just having a dump of data is less useful than working with people. 
interesting so have you got uh have you found useful alternative data in the in the market in terms of uh n- maybe not necessarily naming names but kind of types of data that you've had success with that you've that um you've come across which has been useful in your in your work yeah so in addition to the ones that i've already mentioned um one of the big things over the last year has been mobility data and again just to be clear not about tracking where you are we're not we're not testing whether you individually are um, complying with regulations or lockdown or anything. It's about seeing how well these work at, at scale and what the thing, what, what has an impact on the pandemic. So we've been using mobility data. This has been really fascinating. This is something that we hadn't really in ONS used much at all before. It was a small amount of work before. And it's fascinating. So you have all the methods and quality issues if, if you get data from a provider um what are the biases how do you understand how people use use whatever it is the data is being generated from but then you also have this very high frequency low latency data which shows you bulk movements around the country so if you look at this what you see is of course march last year mobility drops off an absolute cliff when the first lockdown came into effect um, it's quite granular, so you can go to quite high spatial resolution, which is really useful, particularly when there's different pockets of the pandemics. And this kind of data has been feeding into decision making at the highest level. When we're saying when we're saying mobility data, I mean an example um, which you common you often come across. So you'll have the best mobility data or location geolocation data, as I as I understand it, or as it's been said to me, is the stuff from the apps. So there'll be because because the apps have got very close geolocation and because somebody will have um, signed off that, yes, you can use my data as a, as a, as a thing of getting, getting, like getting the app as a condition of getting the app. Um, and so then a, a geolocation company will be buying that data off the app provider. And it's, is that the kind of company we're talking about that might have, you might have got data from? Is, is that that kind of relationship? The two areas that we've worked with, I mean, obviously we've used the Google mobility data, which is open data, which is quite interesting. Um, and that's people who have their Google location switched on and aggregate of that. Uh, we've been working with the Facebook mobility data with Southampton University. Again, nobody's individual records. We can only have relative counts and um, aggregate data that's disclosure controlled. That's really useful. We can look at flows between different areas. And then also we've been working with some of the telecoms companies um, as well. And it's been fascinating. And I think the next, we've learned a lot over the last year about this data and the next steps for us is what else can we do? Can we improve our real-time population estimates? Can we have more higher frequency travel to work outputs? Um, so our, our next stage on this journey with mobility data is really to explore all of that, which is brilliant. I'm quite excited about that. I'm sure, absolutely. Um, any other any other areas of of where alternative data has proven useful? Mobility great data is a great example, but uh, anything else? Another sector. One of the other things that we've looked at in ONS um, is vacancies data. Obviously, over the last year and a half, again things have changed so hugely. So we've looked at uh, online vacancies data. Um, we've been publishing that regularly as well. Um, I think there's a geographic breakdown. And again, one of the things that we want to look at in the future is, is there going to be a shift post-pandemic where more people are doing remote working, more people are working from home? And this might be some, this might be a way that we could um, explore that. 
Is this so when you say vacancies data, are we talking that you guys are scraping job sites? No, we're not. We don't do the scraping ourselves. Um, again, we have to be really mindful about the ethics, so we don't just go about and scrape everybody's websites. We work closely with um, one of the uh, one of the um, private sector businesses that do it. not not the scraping, but do the publish the uh, vacancies. Are you quite UK? Are you limited at all to the like? Would you be minded to to work with a UK business? Because a lot of alternative data, private sector businesses will be based in America. Do you have a bias towards working with UK businesses where where possible, or or, or is just the right person wherever they are? So we want data that covers the UK. Um, I don't. I think we'd be interested in in anyone who has data that covers the UK, uh, wherever they were based. We also have some international programs as well. Um, so we work with the FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. We have a, a data science hub there, um, which is supporting developing countries, helping to build uh, data science capability in developing countries. So if people have interesting data that covers some of those countries, we're interested in that as well. Um, and then we work quite a lot with the likes of the UN and the OECD so that we can share what we learn, which is a really important part of what we do in the campus, share what we learn, not just with ONS, not just across the public sector in the UK, but internationally as well. Yeah. Okay. So who would you like to hear from in, in a, if, if someone was listening to this podcast, <laughs> they might like to, uh, might like to kind of, um, they think you might be interested in their, in their, in their data. I don't want to, I don't want to invite an avalanche of, of unsolicited emails. So if we could try and focus a little bit in terms of who, who you might like to hear from. What would be on my wish list? Um, this would be my personal wish list, I think. Yeah. Um, Anything that covers, so ideally, our ideal data sets are ones which either we know what the bias is um, or is biased, more likely to be the former than the latter. Give me an example of a, give me an example of a bias because you mentioned it earlier. Oh, so for example, if you, let's take Facebook mobility, that's just people who have the, um, have their Facebook mobility turned on on their smartphone. So they're biased towards people who have Facebook have a smartphone and are likely to leave their location on. And I think I might be saying that Facebook now tends to be older people, or at least that's the, the received wisdom. Um, so we don't know what we're what we're missing. Got it. Okay, I've got it. Sorry. So as you were saying, um, so you know what the bias is. So I mean another one, another one which which kind of came up recently was um Pret made their data available to Bloomberg. And so you can track on Bloomberg, you can you can track track the Pret uh usage and and that's been quite useful for for tracking the recovery um when people are getting back into prep well, that's that's really interesting with the prep index that is the thing that people talk about isn't it yeah. so yes anything anything that gives an angle that is quite difficult to get elsewhere but also it has to have the right coverage so for the prep index presuming that's looking particularly at footfall number of people being back in the office in busy city centers so yep. that might be quite a good um quite a good indicator for that but if you were looking at uh i don't know rural towns and high streets it might be less of a, a good indicator so understanding those things is really important anything that gives you an angle on um aspects of the economy um other things that we're really interested in is around obviously climate change and net zero so anything around that I think one of the the 
uh, interesting thing at the moment is around well-being, which is quite a subjective thing. So anything that that can inform that, whether it's about whether people are going to parks or whether it's about how people feel, what else? What else? Mm. Yeah. And we're looking for things, ideally, ideally it would be high frequency and low latency. It would be regularly updated, ideally it would have a long time series, obviously. High spatial frequency, splitting by uh, social demographic characteristics is always really useful. So things like age, gender, um, some measure of income, those, those kind of things are always really useful. It's, diff- it's difficult to narrow it down because like, no, 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 it's great. That's all, that's all good stuff. Absolutely, I, I'm a, yeah, I'm afraid you're going to get swamped, maybe, but um, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, there's a um, there's a question I should have asked before, which I which I haven't. So I'm going to ask it now. Which is often you find from an alternative data perspective when it's when it's a question of um, so companies can be reluctant to share their data because of privacy issues or because mm-hmm. of all sorts of all sorts of reasons is it possible has it happened that a company is willing to share its data with you because the ONS is reputable and, the, and they can get your guarantee that it's not going to go any further and it's not going to come out on the open market and it won't make them look bad um and so is it possible has it ever happened can you see it happening where you can be getting uh, in getting insights into the private sector which aren't actually available on the market um because you're i mean broadly because you're doing it for for good reasons uh beyond just making a profit so as the national statistics institute with the legislation that goes with that we are in a unique position in ons in that what i said quite early on legally you know we have data for public good it's not about making a profit it has to be Anything that's market moving, we have to be make sure it's available to everyone at the time. We're going to say they know it's coming and it's there at the time that we say. So, for example, the um, publication of GDP, people need to know when it's coming and then it needs to be published at that time so that it's fair and accessible to everybody. And I think that and that's all enshrined in the Code of Practice for Official Statistics and some of our legislation around that as well. So I think we are in a unique position in, in being trustworthy with that data um, and certainly the idea as someone works for us the idea that we would have some data and then give it to someone else for profit just fills me with horror um, <laughs> someone specific for profit obviously people can use our data um, once it's published for however they however they like um, so I do I do think we're in a position where we hope that people are willing to work with us in a way that it might be more challenging not impossible but more challenging with with other areas yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I can see the ONS in a way being a wonderful aggregator of this kind of data, which yeah. is what you do essentially for yeah. for, for a living. But um, you know, a lot of data which is sensitive. A big pharma, big uh, pharmaceutical company may be very wary of making their privacy their data available on the market for privacy reasons. But if it's gone to the ONS and has been pushed together with lots of other pharmaceutical data and, yeah. and you know, and you guys have made sure that the that it's clean of, of any of any personal data on it or anything like that, then I can see the ONS and the and the government in a way being a kind of facilitator for for bringing data to the to the public. Yeah, we hope so. We hope so. And it's, I mean, of course, when it comes to the private sector, it's not just about the disclosure control about individuals or individual businesses. It's also taking care of the 
commercial considerations of that private sector company, you know, they might not want their market share to be published openly, repeatedly. Um, so it's thinking about how we work with those commercial considerations as well as the more kind of traditional disclosure control considerations. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Louisa, I think we've um, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think that's been fascinating. It's uh, time has flied, so um, yes. has flown. So, um, so yeah, Louisa, thank you so much for for coming on. As I say, being a completely unique guest, um, and uh, so far maybe maybe the first of many governments. Um, but um, but thanks so much for being for being fascinating, and um, and and best of luck with the uh, with the ongoing ongoing challenges. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope I haven't started some competition as to who's the biggest world leader in faster indicators, although that might be interesting for you. Well, if any other world leaders are listening, then you better, you better come on quickly to, uh, to state your claim. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Louisa. Thank you.